Well, if you looked at your bulletin this morning, you saw that our text is in the 13th chapter of Hebrews. And studying Hebrews from beginning to end is really a lengthy process for anyone who were to undertake it. If we stopped this morning and just went and did a summary of each chapter of the book of Hebrews, we'd realize quickly it contains an astounding amount of truth as well as a lot of very challenging and difficult exhortations to believers. As I've said over and over when I've taught through the book, the overall focus is on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The original recipients came out of a Jewish background, and and we believe at the time of the writing, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing, which means the normal sacrifices of the Old Covenant were ongoing. And so for at least some of these individuals... They were tempted to wonder, have we made a mistake? Maybe Jesus isn't all we need. Some were perhaps tempted to go completely back to the old covenant way of worship, but others were perhaps thinking, well, maybe we need to add something to Jesus. We don't want to miss the mark. And the focus of the book of Hebrews is on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Don't go back. Don't look away. There is no other way to have a right relationship to God except through Jesus Christ. The book begins with the sufficiency of Jesus. The book ends with the sufficiency of Jesus. And everything in between is about the sufficiency of Jesus. But in the process of reinforcing and proving this central truth, the writer has covered a wide variety of topics. He's talked about Jesus in relation to angels. Jesus in relation to Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people of the Old Testament. Jesus in relation to other Old Testament saints. Jesus in relation to the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus in relation to the priest of the Old Covenant. Jesus in relation to God the Father in heaven. Jesus in relation to individual believers. Jesus in relation to his church. But while the book is filled with these deep theological truths, it's not just a book of theology. It's about practical living. And so the book also contains countless exhortations and reminders for the children of God that they need to live a life pleasing to Him. Countless exhortations and commands and warnings are found in this book. For the original recipients, don't look to animal sacrifices. For us, don't look to anything other than Jesus. Don't walk away from the faith and become an apostate. There's no hope if you do. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. You have a long race. Keep focused on Him. Remember the Old Testament examples of faith and follow their example. Don't forget in the midst of your difficulties, you have direct access to God in prayer. Avail yourselves of that privilege. Don't forsake the church and the gathering together with other believers. Look out for other Christians. It's not just about you. Help them finish the race because we're all in this together as the family of God. Respond well to your leaders as we talked last week and pray for them. And that's not everything. That's just a quick summary of the types of exhortations and truths found in this letter. I would probably be able to say this about most books of the Bible, but if you were stranded on a desert island and all that came with you was a copy of the book of Hebrews, you would have enough information to be saved and you'd have enough information to live a life pleasing to God from this book. It really is an astounding letter. I originally chose to start studying Hebrews because I didn't know much about it. I'd read my Bible But I didn't know the contents of Hebrews and I felt it was important so I started studying and I taught through it in my class of faith builders. Due to the length of the letter and my schedule and how we approach teaching of verse by verse in depth, it took me eight years to go from beginning to end in my Sunday school class and get through Hebrews. It seemed every time I came to a verse and I thought, oh, I can do this in one message, it wound up being three or four because there was a depth of truth and application here that I missed on the first quick read. And as I've had the chance to preach in the morning and evening services over the years, I've turned to Hebrews over and over, and for the last many years, on Sunday mornings, I've almost preached exclusively from Hebrews. 
I know many people, when they find out I'm preaching, give a friendly chuckle even when they're talking to me and say, I bet we're going to Hebrews. I had to look it up because I was curious when this all started. I taught my first message from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, on November 30th of 2008. But I wanted to cover the entire book and I only get a limited opportunity, so I just kept going. And today, after all these years, I'm at the end of Hebrews. In fact, this morning, we're going to cover Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 25, and it's going to wrap up the book. And before you simply think, well, thank goodness that's over, I'm ready to hear something else, I want to encourage you to bear with me through this one final journey in Hebrews, because I don't think God's done with us quite yet. As I was studying, and I was thinking about our own approach to how we teach at Lakeside, more than one commentator pointed out something that is interesting to an extent. At Lakeside, we teach verse by verse. When Pastor Steve goes through a book of the Bible, he teaches for years often on a single book because we go in depth. That's certainly my background, what I was taught in seminary. It's what I experienced at Grace Community Church. It's what I try and do. But the original recipients of this letter would not have heard this over a period of Sundays. It would have all been read to them at once. The chapters and verses are our edition much later. They would have just had this long letter and in all likelihood someone would have stood up in front of a house church and they would have started reading. And they would have read the entirety of the book of Hebrews as part of one Sunday. I can't comprehend what it must have been like to be bombarded with that much truth with those deep thoughts all at one fell swoop. God in his providence, of course, preserved the book as part of his sacred scriptures because he knew to fully digest it, it would need to be heard over and over and over again. But again, I think about what it must have been like to be a part of the very first group of people to hear this. It must have been overwhelming. And the strong warnings and the exhortations, but also the encouragements And it's as though the writer, knowing how it would originally have been received, when he gets to the end of the letter, doesn't just say, so take that. But he wants to encourage them one more time. He knows he's wrapping up the letter. He knows he's coming to the end. As he gets to the end of the letter, he really has a very tender and very practical ending of his letter. It provides comfort and encouragement As we saw last week in the message, he had prayed that he would be restored to them soon. He really loved these believers. And as he came to the end of this difficult letter with weighty teaching, he wanted to encourage them. And I pray that his letter will provide comfort and encouragement and exhortation to us this morning. I don't have a catchy title or a catchy outline this morning very simple. This is the conclusion of Hebrews in three parts. The conclusion of Hebrews in three parts, and I'll I'll give you a hint. The first part's going to take almost all the time. But the conclusion of Hebrews in three parts, and the first part is this, the final prayer. The final prayer. Verses 20 and 21 contain this. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This prayer contains in and of itself deep theological truth, great encouragement, but also praise to God for what he's done. Someone coming in that first reading would hear things that would be familiar as he's wrapping up. The blood of Christ, the new covenant, obedience to the will of God, the centrality and sufficiency of what Jesus did. But this short prayer that culminates in praise also elaborates on a few things that haven't been stated before. A couple of ideas that for the first time he fully mentions at the end of his letter. 
There's a tremendous amount of truth in this simple little prayer. And that begins with the very first words, Now the God of peace. Many translations, including the ESV, which many of you would have, provide an additional word which is appropriate. Now may the God of peace. He clarifies that this is a prayer. He's saying, may God do this. Now may the God of peace. But it's interesting that he's attributing to God peace. Peace in a sin-filled world is in short supply. Had to have been a comforting thought for these believers who we'll see later were living in difficult times to know that the God of peace was the one who had interest in them. The world is evil and full of conflict. It was then, it is today. But in the midst of that, God himself is a God of peace. Again, these Christians face difficulty, hardships, persecution, for some of them imprisonment. For some of them, they lost all of their possessions, likely sanctioned by the government, taking their things. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 32, the writer said this, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The writer had already reminded them of what they knew. Their life was hard. For somebody who endured that, the concept of peace had to feel like a glass of cold water on a hot day. In the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of pressures, in the midst of the pull of the flesh and all of the challenges they faced, they were being told over and over and over, set aside sin, set aside entanglements, run the race, be obedient. And they're reminded here that they can do that because the God of peace is on their side. Peace, real peace, can't be found anywhere else apart from Jesus Christ. You won't find peace in the next election. You won't find peace from the Supreme Court. You won't find peace anywhere, true peace, apart from Jesus Christ because the world is filled with sin and chaos That God is a God of peace is found elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings. For example, in Romans chapter 15, verse 33, the apostle says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. For the former enemies of God living in a fallen world that is hostile to us because it is hostile to Jesus, peace is precious. And I don't doubt when the original recipients were reminded that God is the God of peace, that they were reminded of their own salvation. Paul described it this way. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The God of peace gives us peace through Jesus Christ, peace with Him. the writer has already focused something of this idea on Jesus and peace when the writer alluded to Melchizedek, an obscure Old Testament figure that interacted briefly with Abraham, but that the writer of Hebrews makes clear was a type of Christ. 
In Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. That describes Jesus. He is the king of peace. And because we worship the God of peace, we've been saved by the King of peace, we have peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ, we're called to live in peace. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That God is... A God of peace is a reminder in the midst of the storms of life that we have a refuge. We have the ability to have and pursue peace, not just with God, although that's the greatest gift that we have, but we have the ability to have peace even in this hostile world. Peace in our hearts, resting in God who is peace. Can I encourage you? and we haven't even got into the midst of the prayer proper, in the midst of this turmoil, understand that our God is peace and you can rest in Him. You don't have to be tossed to and fro, even though the world is as crazy as you think it is. Rest in God. Find peace in Him. Call to my mind the words of the Apostle Paul, words that are easy for me to remember and quote and point people to, but words that are a little bit harder to remember to apply on a consistent basis. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need that today. And the God of peace stands ready to share that with us. We've got encouragement, and we're barely scratching the surface We're seeing who the writer is praying to, the God of peace. But he describes more about who God is. Again, before he even gets to prayer, he describes God further. He says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. He's highlighting the power and the glory of God in raising Jesus from the dead. And it's interesting because while the writer has referenced Jesus in his glorified state, this is the first reference he actually makes of the resurrection. At the beginning of the book, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, in describing Jesus, he said, And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A little later in Hebrews 4.14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And the idea being conveyed simply is that Jesus is glorified. The Old Testament priest would pass through the veil to get to the Holy of Holies. Jesus, because of his sacrifice in heaven with God, But here, he mentions for the first time the resurrection, which made that all possible. No doubt it's implied, but it's the first time it's explicit. And it's interesting because as he highlights that, he refers to Jesus in a way that's familiar to Scripture, but is unique and for the first time finds its place in Hebrews. He refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. Again, we have all of the New Testament. That imagery is familiar to us. But it's the first time it's referenced in Hebrews. He refers to him as the great shepherd. We just read he refers to him elsewhere as the great high priest. As different from any other high priest. Jesus is unique. He's the great high priest. He's doing the same thing with the idea of shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. The unique shepherd. There is no one like him. For the sheep of God. 
Of course, this is just teaching truth that Jesus taught about himself. In John chapter 10, Jesus said in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Other biblical writers use that type of terminology. Jesus is the shepherd. So while it's new language for Hebrews, it's common language, but it's touching language. It's showing the care that Jesus has for his sheep. Sheep are utterly dependent on their shepherd. They need the shepherd for guidance, to find safety, to find sustenance. Without a reliable and good shepherd, the sheep are easy targets who don't stand a chance in a rough world. Jesus himself pointed out the distinction between a shepherd who cares and a shepherd who just is a hired hand talking about himself. He said, again, verse 11 of John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is all wrapped up in the phraseology of the writer of Hebrews and referring to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. They're always God's sheep. That's what we are. In fact, when Peter uses this imagery to say one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. In fact, he makes it clear that pastors will give an account. He didn't use the term great shepherd, but he says the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So to be reminded that God raised up from the dead our great shepherd is a beautiful reminder in just a few words of God's tender loving care for you and me. He laid down his life for us, his sheep. And the fact that God raised him from the dead proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of sinners like us. In fact, that's what the next little bit of language means. Who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. God could bring Jesus up from the dead because Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God in payment for the sins of all those who would ever believe. That includes you and me. And based on the blood completing its work, it's the blood of the eternal covenant, God raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, Jesus' blood... We're taught by Hebrews did what all of the Old Testament sacrifices could never do. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 is one of several places where this truth is stated. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. When we repeat Jesus' words at the Lord's table, it includes this language. Jesus said in Mark 14, 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The world is anything but peaceful. The world is chaotic. It's getting increasingly hostile to Believers in Jesus Christ. And yet in the midst of it all, we have an eternal hope and an eternal covenant because of Jesus' shed blood. The idea of a covenant is critical to God and it was a focus of the writer of Hebrews. I won't read it in its entirety, but in Hebrews 10, 16, and 17, he begins saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. Quoting Old Testament text. God makes covenants and God keeps covenants. And Jesus' blood brought us into an eternal covenant with God and there will be no change. We will not be kicked out. 
What's so precious of all this language is that if we're one of God's sheep, Jesus knows us and He cares for us and there is nothing this hostile, sin-filled world can do to us that can separate us from that. Over and over in my own walk with the Lord, I go to Romans chapter 8. I'll read just a few of the verses that I go to that remind me of what I have in Jesus and it's the same type of truth being highlighted by the writer of Hebrews. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And moving down to verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this fallen world, we do face hardships. Illnesses and sicknesses. Our own struggle against sin. Unless God intervenes, one day in our lifetime, I believe we'll face persecution that we've never experienced for our faith. But through it all, as we're reminded by these few words about the great shepherd of the sheep, we are sealed into God's eternal covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing can separate us from that. And he reminds us, Jesus is Lord. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign one. And as this is laid out for us that our great shepherd is our Lord. He's our Savior. He was raised from the dead by the God of peace. There's a responsibility we have to that love showered upon us. He loves and cares for us. In return, we love him and serve him. Jesus spoke in very direct terms in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's really what the prayer that we're finally going to get to is all about. The God of peace raised our great shepherd from the dead because of the blood of the eternal covenant. That's just a description of who he's praying to. But his prayer brings together two ideas. Our responsibility, but also what God is doing in us. So now we get to the prayer, and I'm just going to restate it a little bit. Now may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The more I think about this, this is a prayer I could utter for myself every single day. It actually should define our purposes in life that we would be equipped and we would do every good thing according to God's will. The writer of Hebrews wants nothing more than for all the truth that he has so meticulously laid out for them to be actually applied in their life. And he recognizes that obedient living is not possible apart from the continuing empowerment of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is all about doing God's will and God's will is not complicated. Obey. Obey. In fact, this little prayer is really a synopsis of the entire book. Why did he write the book of Hebrews? Because he wanted the recipients to be equipped in every good thing to do God's will. Knowing that God would be working in them to accomplish what was pleasing in God's sight through Jesus Christ. 
equip you in every good thing to do his will. The writer of Hebrews is asking God to provide the resources in whatever form so that his children can obey. Every good thing we need to do his will is already available to us if we would simply appropriate it. It's available and God delights to give it to us. In James chapter 1 verse 17 says this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, God continually showers us with what we need, good and perfect gifts. And God provides those good things because we have work to do as long as we have life and breath. The last verse I read in our scripture reading from Ephesians today, verse 10 of chapter 2, says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We're saved by grace it's a gift of God, but we're saved and we have a job to do, which is to walk in the works that God prepared for each one of us. That's doing God's will. In fact, that's why we gather on Sunday morning and hear the preaching of the word, why Pastor Steve has been doing what he's been doing for over 40 years, is so that you'll be equipped to apply the truth in your life. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 describes it. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And our obedience is to be to all that God has commanded in his word. I think in some environments it's a neglected part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just going, although it involves that. It's not just making disciples, although that's a part of it. It's not just baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, although those are all key components. You can't be fulfilling the Great Commission without those. But Matthew 28, beginning of verse 20, says this, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And that's why God's given us his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, very familiar verses. Many of us have them memorized. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All of this type of truth is wrapped up in this simple prayer. Now the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. The writer was praying for his original hearers and God would apply it to us to say he's asking God to equip us to do what God has called us to do in his word. So he's praying for God's equipping but he's also praying for God's continuing work in the lives. Now the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. In other words, while we have a responsibility, God himself has to be a part of it. That's what the writer is praying for. God is at work in us. He calls us to do what is pleasing in his sight. He calls us to obey out of love for him. He calls us to keep all that he commanded, doing the works that he prepared beforehand for us. But the writer is praying what he already knows God wants and promises to do which is to work in us to accomplish all these things we're not left on our own to figure it out God will do his work in us to enable us to have the inner desire and the commitment to do the work that God wants from us that's his promise if we'll just accept it unless you came to faith this morning you know that obedience is hard and if you came to faith this morning I'm telling you obedience is going to be hard we can be forgetful we can be selfish we know better but we can be sinful we can be lazy 
We can have good intentions that never translate into actual good works. But the comfort in all of this, despite our failures, is to remember that God still calls us to do the work and we're not left to our own devices. Please understand, with all the energy that we have, we're supposed to use our energy and our efforts to overcome sin and slothfulness and forgetfulness and selfishness. We have to do the work. And yet, even as you start trying to apply your efforts to it, Satan will whisper in your rear in some manner, why bother? You tried this before, you failed. You're going to fail again. Ignore his lies. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us to the reality that the source of our victory is not merely our own efforts, although we need those, but it's the power of God himself who is at work in us to accomplish his will for our lives. God is helping us. God wants you to succeed. God is working in us. The writer is echoing in this short prayer truths taught by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That really is the prayer of the writer of Hebrews. For you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for you to do all in your power to do his will, knowing that he's also praying for God to do the work that he's already promised to do in you. We can do this. Well, but what if I agree with you and I try tomorrow and I sin and I fail? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe it, keep pressing forward in obedience. But, but you don't understand, I've got the same temptation that keeps dragging me down, I can't overcome it. Yes, you can, according to the promise of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Dwell on that. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Understand, you can resist the temptation. There's an escape somewhere. Look for it, and when you find it, take it. But what if in the middle of it, I need help right then? Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can I encourage you with all my heart? God is on our side. He cares for us. He wants you to succeed in doing His will. That's why He's given you His Spirit to dwell within you. In John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I don't know where you stand today. Maybe you're walking really well and you feel like you've got the full armor of God on and you're a champion for God, praise the Lord, excel still more. But you might feel like a broken and weak vessel who's worthless and useless. Let me tell you, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He can use you and He will use you. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it. But understand this, you have all that you need given to you by God already for you to be able to walk in obedience. Satan may tell you otherwise, but the Word of God says you already have, if you know Jesus, all you need. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. 
purpose in your heart today. If you need to repent of sin, repent. And believe the promises of God. This prayer is not just a throwaway at the end of the book of Hebrews. The writer believes it. He understands that this prayer is heard by God. And God stands ready to equip you in every good thing to do His will. And He'll work in you so that your life is pleasing in His sight. Believe Him. Because it's all about Him anyway. It's not about us. There's a little phrase at the end of this prayer in verse 21. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why all of this is there. So that God receives the glory because he redeemed sinners like us and empowered us through his word, through his spirit, through his sustaining grace to walk in obedience. Not perfectly, not always wonderfully, but consistently we can please the Lord. But it's not for us, it's for him and his glory. Every aspect of our lives is to be an act of worship to God, to please Him, and He's given us all we need to be able to do that in Christ Jesus. Our final two points, as I hinted earlier, will flow a little bit more quickly. The conclusion of Hebrew in three parts. First, and we've covered the final prayer. Second, the final exhortation. The final exhortation. In verse 22, the writer says this, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The writer's clearly done. He's wrapping up things. But he has a final exhortation, a final encouragement, a final command, as it were. He understands, I believe, that to the beleaguered church to whom he was writing, some of the things he said was hard. They were hard. Things were challenging. Perhaps things they didn't want to hear. He did not tickle ears with his letter. But out of love for them and concern for them, he says, but I urge you, brethren, he's one of them. He's identifying with them. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, but I urge you, brethren. He's almost pleading with them. It's a strong appeal, but it's kind. He says, bear with this word of exhortation. He's describing the entirety of his letter as an exhortation, a call to live obediently. He says, bear with it. There can be a tendency to discount or ignore hard teaching. Perhaps it flows in one ear and out the other. Or perhaps you hear it and you go, well, that that might be true, but I need to look into this some more. So you set it on the shelf and then you never make the changes God's calling you to make. The writer is pleading with them, please don't do that. I love you. You're my brothers. Listen. Bear with me. Don't forget what I'm telling you. Don't let this be something you heard and then move on. That really is a plea for every one of us every single Sunday when we hear the teaching from God's Word. I do like his description of his letter. I've written to you briefly. If he wrote a long letter, I guess I could never finish it. (laughs) Now, there are longer letters than Hebrews. And shorter letters than Hebrews. But he was covering weighty topics. And really what he's saying is, look, I could have told you a whole lot more. And if you've ever studied theology, theology books are written. And pages and pages and chapters cover things that are really only a clause or a verse in the book of Hebrews. Because there's such depth there. And he's really telling them, look, I didn't tell you everything I could have told you. But what I did tell you, please, don't ignore it. You're my brothers. I told you for your own good. You're my brothers and sisters. Listen and obey. That's the call to us as I already mentioned. 
we hear teaching every Sunday in Sunday school classes from the pulpit from Pastor Steve, we need to bear with those words of exhortations and not let them go in one ear and out the other. The writer then just sends some closing greetings. He mentioned something that we don't see elsewhere in Scripture. He says, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes, I will see you. Apparently, Timothy, the, the disciple of the Apostle Paul, is in view here. He was known to the writer of Hebrews. He was known to the recipients of Hebrews. And it's the only place it's recorded, apparently. Timothy, at some point, was imprisoned. But now he's been released. It's not surprising he would have been imprisoned. But we don't know any details because it's not recorded elsewhere in Scripture. But he's saying, if he gets released, I hope to come with him and we'll see you. And then he says, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Seems like whoever was going to first read the letter might not include everyone to whom the letter was intended. It wouldn't include all the leaders. Perhaps it was only to a specific house church and there were a bunch of house churches in the area. It's not exactly clear. But he's saying greet everybody. Greet the leaders. Greet the other saints. Let them know we love them. He said those from Italy greet you. He could have been in Italy when he wrote the letter. He may have been traveling with a group of Italians. But again, this was just a friendly greeting. His primary point is to bear with the word of exhortation. He urges them, listen and obey. Brings us to the final part. The conclusion of Hebrews in three parts. The final prayer, the final exhortation, and the benediction. He just says it simply. Grace be with you all. God's grace is, of course, already a part of their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He's just asking for more of that grace to be their reality. That God will continually give grace. I couldn't help but think about the song. Grace upon grace flows down. That's what he's asking. Grace be with you all. There's a sense in which this was the common type of conclusion of a letter. The Apostle Paul used something like this many times. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 23, says the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you it's a polite and sincere way to end the letter but understand these aren't just throwaway words this isn't like a God bless you after a sneeze that means nothing the spirit of God placed these words there grace be with you all it's just a reminder again of what they already have through Jesus Christ Grace is God's unmerited favor that we don't get what we deserve from God. Even a secular dictionary defines it appropriately as this, unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. That's actually a good definition in a secular dictionary. God's grace is something we need daily. We have God's grace in our salvation. We need God's grace for our ongoing sanctification. It's interesting because many of us spend time frustrated and angry and discouraged by the world in which we live because things aren't going our way. We think we deserve better than what we're getting in so many arenas because of our pride, because of our self-love. We think we deserve better things from this world because we don't think theologically all the time, because we don't deserve anything that we would want. The Apostle Paul makes it clear, for the wages of sin is death. Be careful about wishing that people get what they deserve because that's what sinners deserve before a holy God. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Don't forget who you were apart from Christ on a daily basis. It will humble you. It will change your perspective on when things don't go your way because you'll realize you're already given more in Jesus Christ than you could ever dream or hope for. But even as you remember that, remember that that's who you were, not who you are. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of a God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our reality if we know Jesus.
That's God's grace. Also part of what I read this morning in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace be with you all. If you know Jesus, you've received that grace. And daily, we live in that grace. My prayer for myself and for those of you who have heard me teach from this book is that when you reflect on the book of Hebrews, it won't be that you know more than you used to know but rather that because you study God's word, you've been equipped in every good thing to do his will. Grace be with you all. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we can only stand in awe of who you are. Lord, we don't need to look in the mirror for a moment and we recognize who we are. We are sinners. We are unworthy. And it makes it all the more amazing and all the more praiseworthy that you sent Jesus to die for sinners like us. We can only praise you, Lord, because you've given us the greatest gift we could ever imagine. But Lord, I understand that some who are hearing my voice right now may have never received the gracious gift of salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes today. That they would understand that they're not good people. That they're not self-righteous. That they're not okay with the man upstairs. But they are sinners before a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. But Lord, open their eyes like you opened our eyes to see that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And I pray that you would open their eyes and today they would understand and accept and believe in the gracious gift of Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Lakeside. I thank you for the teaching ministries of our church, for the faithful example of Pastor Steve, who so lovingly has cared for us by teaching us your word week in and week out. And we thank you. And Lord, I pray now that you, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, will equip us in every good thing to do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.